Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Dope Black, Dope Black Podcast. This is the Dope Black Dad Podcast. My name is Marvin Harrison. Today we're talking to you about representation in the media, specifically for Black people. We also have a contribution today talking from an actual South Asian writer. Um, so the reason why this became so important is that I actually started my week this week on uh, the set of Hollyoaks. Um, we got a a message from one of the digital team the brand partnerships team and they were just talking to us about what it is that we're doing loving all the great work we're doing in the community and what we're doing for men um and then they were like look we have this really interesting storyline that we're doing and to be honest we just want you just to come up and meet everybody and like talk to them about what's actually going on and um the work that they're doing and why they're doing it and I was like yeah sure I'll come hang out in Hollywood now for anyone that doesn't know Anyone that is under the rock or just isn't from the UK, which is also very, very possible. We are a global podcast after all. Like, Hollyoaks is like the show that was for us. It was the us. And when I say us, it was the age at that point. Being like 14, 15, 16, and like having a show that was like focusing on relatively young people. Everyone was really super good looking. The storylines were really directional and like related to what was going on and around the time, all the big issues. I think that's when the first time I saw but maybe a gay relationship on TV, I want to say. So there was like um, challenging um, um, being LGBTQIA, disability, being a woman, rape culture. So the legacy of Hollyoaks is that it's always just been that show. As I got older, fell out in touch with it. But more recently, since like Richard Black was being back on, um, I just started checking in again and watching trailers and like watching some of the extended clips um, just to see what's happening in the show and how it's all going. Um, so I've seen um, stuff around Knife Crime before and they've been tackling that in a, a, um, a bigger uh, conversations as well. So they also tackle county lines as a talking point which I thought was super super interesting uh, they've also tackled uh, far right radical ra radicalization of white men brilliant topic to be tackling and you're like actually this is what TV used to be this is what TV should be this is what I understand TV is for that's what the point of the medium is it's not to entertain but it's to bring people's lives in their living room in a way that's relatable um, to teach people and to like you know educate them and to inspire them so the storyline being There was the, the original framework was there is going to be a knife crime premise in including involving young people in Hollyoaks. So that's the skeleton. And then uh, Tabo, the writer, is like, look, 
I think this should be black. A black young boy should be at the center of it, and like, it's, it, and this is where it becomes really interesting because there's almost like if I t- on that basis, if I say we're doing a TV show and we are doing it based on um, a black person, a black boy, uh, knife crime, and his dad uh, was in the life. He was, you know, he's come out of prison, and you know, you would have all these automations in your head as to what that means. And rightly so, because the, the world runs that way and these things happen. So that's what would normally happen. But a consideration was, is that like, all right, if we then take it and give the knife crime story to a young white boy, it's also very possible. But then we're just doing the opposite of what people are saying is happening. Um, and it then looks like we're avoiding the actual issue, which is people are representing knife crime to be a young black boy challenge and nothing else. Um, and then that would be like too simple, lazy, um, not really tackling uh, the conversation full on. And then they can't put their perspective on it. So there's like, actually, we do need to make it a young black boy. But if we make it a young black boy, we have to handle it in a way to stop people from thinking it is just perpetuating the stereotypes um, of what is actually happening. Um, and it really got to me to think like about how sensitive and difficult it is to create and tell our stories because either you're going to dishonor them, perceived to be dishonoring them, and the only way to honor them is to make it so that the actual stereotype isn't the truth and that there's a much, much more transparent, powerful, transformational truth attached to it, which people aren't being seen to. But to get there, you've got to take them partly down the line of what they believe the worst of it is, the most simplest version. Um, otherwise, you know, people will get lost and they won't understand what the message is. And so in that gap, between so the, the example is right now it's a bit of a who done it and the who done it is is that the young black boy uh, Richard Blackwood's son um, is being accused of stabbing a police officer who's also a black man after they've had some sort of altercation earlier in that day and so the whole town city you, you, everyone around him his friends and peers believe that he has done this and so he's getting the uh, is it retribution what's the word uh, he is getting all of the trial and tribulation associated with being guilty without any of the due process. So that's happening. Um, and then throughout, there is this question that there's a bit of a doubt whether he did it or not. And in that doubt is the space. But that space between you know it happening, seeing that he's he maybe he's the main culprit, you know, us as an audience, if you're talking about the black community, they're going to be like, well, look, you're just making this guy a knife crime murderer slash you know he, he he is he is an aggressor in knife crime and for non-black people it's like yeah i knew it, it would have to be the black boy so you have a tiny window to tell this story in a way that one follows the journey trajectory of the misinformation but also in that you don't have to make sure you honor the people who are genuinely being misinformed and also honor the people who are who are being misinformed about um, so you have a couple of a day, maybe a day, maybe two episodes, maybe three episodes to be able to wrap that whole story up. Otherwise, you leave people feeling uh, in their nerves. And if they feel the way, they won't come and watch the rest of it in conclusion. They will just leave believing that what they saw or the part of what they saw was the end. And it's this massive, like, not cloak and dagger, but like behind the scenes thinking. So he didn't want to write that scene because he didn't want to get it wrong. And he didn't want to represent knife crime in that way. And he didn't want to have to turn around and like lead people down the journey but he also didn't want to just do it in a way which is like there's an acronym between young people and there's no wider societal narrative in it so I was like actually this is a very complex thing to be doing it's a complex communication task at its easiest 
but actually it talks about to the nuance of our lived experience and the things that we go through and how we get stuck in some of these narratives because we're so busy trying not to look like the thing we just do things harder we do things that aren't necessarily serving us so he should be able to take that that line and in theory he might have someone in his life who's experienced this he might know it from a uh, from being a young black boy in London himself in some way and then be able to write this from a really powerful episode based on just like the story featuring black people and, not, and it should be enough just a singular message of don't stab people so the writer I was with is uh, Tabo Maloachwa um, he's uh, a Zim uh, father of two that's the guy that I shared on the train um, and I'm going to try and remember I think it was Jay Sheree Patel Jay Sheree Patel was a competition writer um, who um, she she basically was a teacher. There was a competition that they can get uh, uh, to be in the writers' room of Hollyoaks if they won it. She won um, fully in a woman in their mid forties, really interesting South Asian woman. Um, and so yeah, so then those are the two writers that I spoke to, and it made me think about this wider representation piece of like how do we get these stories in media? How do we do them honor and how complex and difficult it is? Because I look at things like um, Black as Fuck and that's on Netflix <clears throat> and people hated it because it looked, it sounded like not authentic enough for our stories. And there's, there's this pressure where it's like, either you are going to represent us and tell our hardship, our challenges um, and our, our like most authentic stories in the margins and the creases of society and bring them into the center like they should deserve to be. So if you're telling like, imagine Moonlight, you're telling a film like Moonlight, which is of an inner city black boy, his mum's on crack uh, and drug addict, and he is in school, He he's now gay and he's falling in love with his best friend. His best friend betrays him and beats him up and calls him an F word. And, you know, then he, then he talks about how he grows up and they reconnect. It's really beautiful, nuanced as an older guy who kind of takes him under the wing with his wife and take, lets him stay in his house. What is interesting, like, beautiful nuances, but it's like, it's either those stories or it's like everything else just doesn't, isn't us. And I think when I watched Black as Fuck the first time, it was kind of dope because it was like talking about successful black men who likes nice things, who... You know, has a nice car, house, he has a wife, he has five kids, he's established, but it's just like a miserable 40-year-old, but rich. Like, and, and he's just like, everything's about racism. And he still comes from the place of, like, everything is because of racism and or slavery. Um, and I think even throughout, they made the joke, it's like, it's because of slavery. Um, and it's like finding a sweet spot where you honour the people you come from and also create something that can go beyond and the world can learn our stories and our experiences is a really difficult place to do. And something like knife crime is just incredibly sensitive. So really enjoyed hearing the behind the scenes process of how that went. And so here's Tabo. He's talking about uh, his experience. Um, uh, and this is what we came up with on the day. Yeah. Hi, my name is Tabo Maletra and I'm a writer for Hollyoaks. So Tabo, can you tell me a little bit more about the knife crime story and like why it's so important, uh, why you wanted to tell that story? Yeah, so um, there was already a knife crime story on the table um, with teenagers front and centre as the focus. But um, we had a young black boy on the show called Demarcus. So a young black character called Demarcus. And I basically pitched that he should be the one to hold the knife. And basically, I was, I was loath to do that. I didn't want to have a new black character coming to the show and the first thing we do is put a knife in their hands because it felt just so stereotypical. Mm. But at the same time, um, 
poly influence from the area, the world I've grown up in, like South London, Pick and Croydon. Um, I know that there isn't an issue with a lot of um, young black boys carrying knives. And as soon as a young black boy does that, people don't look at the reasons why. Mm. And they just basically see them as guilty. Mm. There's like this um, kind of racial bias that exists with people. If a, if a young white boy does it, it's still bad, obviously, but they'll say, what are the issues? Why? What, why? But if it's a young black boy, it's they're a, they're a hood rat, they're mm. a fuck, they're a villain. So um wanted to deal with those stereotypes, but it's all told within the prism of a father and son relationship. Mm. Um Felix, played by Richard Blackwood, um, was out of the Marcus' life for periods of his life. And now he's come back in. So they're going through a healing process where they can basically have deep conversations with each other. When you approach the writing of it, like yeah. what, what what do you have to be extra careful of as a as a black man of power? Or what do you put into it that comes from your personal experience that, you know? I, I basically try to make it as authentic as I possibly can. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Because I'm aware that there might be other people from my background, black people, black fathers, watching the show. So I'm conscious that our voices have to be told in an authentic way. And I don't like using that word authentic because mm. I feel it just gets like thrown about. But that's the best word I can like kind of um, way of doing it. So I just try and make it as true to how I find being a father, as a black father, um, how my friends the struggles that we have as being a black father mm. um, and I just try and pull it on the page in as honest and open a way as I possibly can mm. so people can say yeah do you know what I've got some of those issues as well so yeah yeah Hollyoaks has always uh, tackled really brave subjects throughout the years mm. like and, and now you're writing on it it's, it must be sort of a pressure as well to maintain such a like clear legacy of tackling really complex issues do you have a, a view of like what you want young people to take in from this? Like, I know there was a county line story yeah. that was before your time, but like, there's a county line story that got, I think she just mentioned, I think 147,000 people screen grabbed their contact number off the yeah. back of it. Yeah. And they were specifically targeting 13 to 17 year old boys. Yeah. Like, how does that make you feel on, uh, in, in terms of writing something that has such a huge impact? Um, it, there is like a pressure there. There is a pressure because you want to tell it in a way that is genuine and that is real. You don't want to glamorise it, mm. especially when you're dealing with like heavyweight issues. We, we're not trying to glamorise it. We're trying to solve the pitfalls. But um, it's being as honest and open, I feel, using those words again, being as honest and open with the conversation. And that's what we try to do. We try to basically start up a conversation and like show the fears that people might, that, that might lead people into a counter lines gang, that might lead people to carry a knife. Mm. And so they can say, okay, this person had these fears. This is how they manage to overcome it. They talk to people, you know what I mean? So they might have a conversation with their parents, mm. but also the parents as well. They can see how their youngsters might actually get influenced and might be led into working with the drug gang or carrying a knife, etc. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so. And just lastly, like the, the pressure in terms of like TV like this and like how much it, re- it replicates reality. Mm-hmm. Um, like, is, is, is there a, an approach to newer TV in terms of what, what you grew up with that's really changed? 
um, dramatically. The content that you was you grew up on. I, I don't know. I'm assuming like Fresh Prince or something. Yeah. Uh, but I, in in the UK, like the Desmonds, ha- has it completely changed in terms of like what's possible? Um, yeah, I, I think it is. Like um, in terms of how our voices mm. as black people, as a mm. black community, is um, being portrayed on TV, it's become much more real. Mm. Um, simply because, thankfully, and it's not, it's not enough, but there's been more black writers, black producers, black um, development execs, etc., etc., working behind the scenes mm. to make sure that our voices and our stories are told mm. in the way that they should be told. Mm. Because... Um, there was a period when there was a lot of black faces on TV, but then we'd watch it and we'd say, that doesn't that sound like us. That doesn't sound like us. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that's that's pretty what what influenced me mm. to become to become a writer. Mm. Because I thought, you know what? We need to it's great having our faces out there, mm. but we need to have our story told in as you mentioned, like the nuances, mm. all those nuances which people which we'd understand. When we see just a small thing, it could be a song, it could be a bit of food. And it's not really um, important for narrative mm. but it's important for character mm. and it gives us a true representation of who we are on screen yeah. and that's why I kind of that's what kind of influenced me in coming on to writing for TV and we're seeing more of it but we're not there yet yeah. we're not there yet so. uh, and just on a personal one like, can you tell me more about the experience of becoming a father what that's been like um, like how old are your, your child children like what's that yeah. all like and, and what, just one big lesson that you would give to a new father that's just like having a child right now what would you Ooh. say to him okay so becoming a father is like the most mind blowing thing firstly I'm going to shout out my girlfriend <laughs> <'Cause> like, <laughs> smart, yeah, smart. yeah 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 because I, I never do that and like, she, like, she sees this like she she, she like, um, like she, she she is a soldier mm. with him you know what I mean she's a soldier but um, with like having a child having a son I feel such a kind of responsibility to be um, a good example for him mm. you know what I mean like um, yes it's providing but also I just want to make sure that I'm a messy guy for example mm. all of a sudden I want to make sure that I'm tidy in the room mm. <laughs> you know what I mean like, I, I want to keep things tidy so, so then he sees okay then these are the things that I've got to do mm as a growing person mm. you know what I mean just just, just things like that um, it's brilliant right see he like I, and that's what I mean by just a proper guy um, and what he was saying was super interesting it was like super on point um, and really considered and he's really making sure that you know he honours the show honours himself and his own career and what he does and what he loves and being really sensitive to the to the challenges but this real thing of like us as black people being in these spaces being on these um, platforms that were designed by in whiteness and had whiteness in mind when it was launched and then has become more and more inclusive more and more involved more equity has been provided but now you have to be careful that you don't misrepresent yourself or the show because also it's, he's a part of the ship so you can't sit there and just be like oh well if you handled it wrong because the writing process is, is that like a storyline will come up everybody will throw their different parts in and then by and large you might write a piece based on what your idea is and you would write it out and it gets added to the show and it all gets woven in by this group of writers which is super amazing um but then like you know if you come up with an idea and then somebody else ends up writing it what happens to that idea and it being having the right tone in it? it and, and also there are script editors, people that come in and review the script and then they they may not be from 
our culture, our world, and then they may end up having to like edit things. And if that happens, then your story has been, you know, torn apart and it's really, really difficult. So it's super interesting and nuanced learning all of those things and then speaking to him. But I also spoke to Jaysari Patel and she talks about what it's like being a woman of colour in a, in a writing room. And I, I probed her. So like a couple of weeks ago, we talked about um, uh, uh, being uh, South Asian and why is South Asian and, and the African diaspora not spend more time together? Why is it so difficult to form a relationship together? Um, what is the, what happens if you try to bring a, South, a black person home as a South Asian person? And she had some really, really interesting things to say as well as her career as a writer. So my name's um, Jaysha Patel and I'm one of the writers. Amazing. What are some of the big storylines that you've, you've worked on or pushed um, yourself? So I think the the biggest one early on uh, when I first came to the show was far-right radicalisation. Wow. Um, which I just absolutely loved working on that story. Um, I used to be a high school teacher mm. before I was a writer. Um, and one of the things that... I used to find really interesting is the sort of evolution of some white working class boys that I used to teach um, who were at the time the sweetest, loveliest kids in the world. They'd be the ones who go, I'll carry your bags, Miss Patel, and all of that kind of stuff. And then as time went on, if I'd sort of seen them on Facebook or something like that, like years later, and you could see that some of the things that they were sharing were well dodgy, <laughs> to put it to put it um, mildly. And I used to think, how does somebody go from being the sweetest boy in class? Um, what happens to them in terms of their lives that they then have their head turned yeah. by far right the far right um so that was something that was particularly you know of interest mm. to me um and i wanted to sort of switch the storyline so the focus was on the journey mm. of the white boy as opposed to the the victims of the family you know mm. the, the muslim family who mm. were subject to, to racial attacks so i think in a way it might have felt like my input was going to be how horrible it is to face racism mm. and that kind of racism but really I wanted to switch it around and, and tell more of a nuanced story um, How do you prepare for something like that? Because it's weird like, the perspective of someone who enacts racism on somebody else like we don't really ever understand I don't know if, how, how do you prepare for something like that? Yeah I mean that. I mean, to me it was my own sort of personal journey during teaching mm. um, that led me to that kind of perspective because to me a lot of those white working class boys who you know, embark on this racist journey, if that's what you want to call it. They're just the lost boys. Mm. So they're the boys who've kind of, you know, wanted to make something of, of their lives and because of various issues haven't been able to. Um, and as, as a result of media manipulation or, you know, the kind of politics that they understand, they end up blaming the wrong people. Mm. Um, and, that's the way I see it, that they've actually kind of chosen the wrong path. But mm. not that you can understand it or even empathise with it, but you kind of get why mm. it actually happens. Mm. Um, so for me, it seems like a weird perspective as an Asian woman mm. to kind of see it from the white working class boy's point of view. But that's the sort of story that I didn't feel had been told um, certainly on, on a soap before. Mm. Um, and it was it was understanding the complexities around it. But it, it was also a story that focused on redemption. Yeah. That once that has happened, once that person has done that very, very bad thing, yeah. what's the journey back to them? Mm. You know, back, back to normality, if that's the way you want to do it. And one of the most 
this particular thing showed like the power of soaps, I think, which mm. was I'd written an episode where Steve, who was the main character, sort of denounced the whole far right um, and got in touch with an organisation called Small Steps, mm. uh, which is a genuine organisation which um, helps sort of counsel people through you know, to, to leave the far right. And after that particular episode aired, they had a spike in the wow. number of people who'd referred themselves um, saying that they got involved with the far right and they're desperate to get out. What is it that they can do to sort of leave the organisation? Mm. How does that make you feel afterwards though? Well, that's now not just you being good at writing. You're like changing how people feel and, and what they do. It felt, I mean, at the time, it was like the biggest deal ever. Um, you know, Brian Kirkwood, who was, who was the exec producer at the time, told me and I was just absolutely like overwhelmed and thought, right, okay, that's the power of storytelling. So because I used to be a high school teacher, you're used to that everydayness of that happening in, in an everyday way of a kid doesn't understand something and you you can change and influence that life whereas when you're a writer you're more re- removed mm. from that sort of everydayness of being able to feel like you're having an impact on people's lives so for me to be able to know that that had happened was a pretty big deal mm. um written a recent episode as well which was to do with historical rape um, and Miss Barrar character, she didn't get, we want to tell a real story, she didn't get the justice that she deserved, as is the case in many historical mm. rape cases. Um, so we wanted it to be true in that sense, that she didn't actually get to prosecute him, he didn't end up being in prison, but she punched him. Wow. <laughs> so she basically... Her you know, own form of justice. Yeah, so yeah. it was her own form of justice. Um, and the feedback that we got from Twitter, reading all the comments on, mm. yes, Misper, you go, Misper, and all this kind of stuff was really lovely that mm. people felt like, okay, it was real because she didn't get legal justice. But the fact that she got some kind of justice where mm. this tiny, tiny woman punched this rapist in the face. Mm. And that was the only form of, you know, revenge she got. And not that we're advocating violence or any of those sorts of mm. things, but it was real mm. that there was that kind of sort of victory. And I had this little scene where all her family had bought these like T-shirts saying, you know, I'm Miss Bamalik. And <laughs> and there were, you know, lots of sort of posts on Twitter saying, oh, I want to buy one of those T-shirts. Mm. So all that kind of stuff, it's really lovely feedback to, to get, but it does kind of make you feel like I can make a difference with what I'm doing, even though it seems quite far removed mm. from people in that sense, being a writer, but knowing that you can tell quite difficult and nuanced stories mm. and for that to land with the audience and know that they can make a change in their life, yeah, I guess. Yeah. What would be your advice to women, young women of colour in terms of becoming a writer? It's a very complex thing to be doing um, and I'm sure it's been very different. Like, you know, I was raised late 90s, early 2000s. I wouldn't even conceive it was possible. I didn't know any. Um, is there any advice that you would give in terms of just how you approach it and, you know, not necessarily the more like how to get a job, more just like, how do you as a person approach it? Um, yeah, it's a really good question. And actually writing wasn't something I started doing until very late in life. Mm. Uh, you know, I qualified as a teacher at 23 and did that for most of my adult life. And I just don't even know why I started writing. And I just decided to do it. It was, you know, something that happened by accident. I saw a, a, a voucher sort of leaflet saying, you know, buy this writing course. So I just did that. 
My advice would be just to write. Mm. And I think there is some genuine opportunities out there because I don't think people from ethnic minority backgrounds ever say as a 12 year old, I want to be a writer. Mm. It's just not our thing. Mm. It's just not what we do. It's like art. It's just, we just don't do it. Mm. Um, you know, our kind of like ambitions fall under different, um, umbrellas, I think. Um, but I, I think there are some companies now that make a genuine effort to try to, have more diverse voices mm. i think you know the particular nuances to do with sort of how asian families might talk to each other and all those kind of things i think it's difficult to do unless you've at least got that represented voice within a writer's room so i'm definitely not saying white writers can't write asian characters or white mm. writers can't write black characters what i mean is within a writer's room you do need people who understand that kind yeah, of family dynamic mm. and the culture and yeah. everything else um, and it's, you know, it's not a, a, a tick box sort of exercise, but I think there are production companies now who are more interested in that authentic voice in a way now that they never were in the past. Mm. Cause I think actually they have been called out mm. in, in a way. And I think it's really obvious when, uh, a production company hasn't made the effort to yes. sort of do their research properly or involve black and Asian writers and have that authentic voice in, in the room. It's, it's very stark. Mm. So I think things are getting better. Um, like for example, I won a competition. That's how I became a writer. So mm. if I'd won a channel Four writing competition and the prize was to, um, have a year's placement here at wow. Hollyoaks, which is quite a big prize. Yeah, that's a very big prize. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which is huge. Um, and they kept me on. So That's after incredible. the year, they liked my writing and then, you know, I, I've been working with them ever, ever since. Mm. And as a result, something I never thought I'd ever do, which was to leave teaching so that I could, I could write wow. full time. Um, so I think there is a genuine opportunity there that wasn't there before. Mm. Uh, but I think equally what you're seeing more diversity on screen than you've got it off it, yeah. if that makes sense. So, yeah. you know, you might have your black families, your Asian families sort of presented on screen, but the writing as a group is still not mm. representative. Um, you know, production and all of those kind of the back part. Mm. I think that is still quite majority white. Yeah. yeah. Final question. So, um, I, I don't know, you may not even be aware, but are you aware of the like sort of South Asian, uh, Pan-African disconnect in terms of like getting married and being, starting relationships together? Is that ever been something that you're aware of? Is that something you would ever try to write about and make an episode? I think it's very much unknown because we're aware of language like BAME and that was used historically. Um, but it's this really beautiful opportunity to kind of explain our differences um, and like maybe where some of those differences come from and some of the things that we kind of communicate about each other to prevent that true harmony to be one collective Black and Asian community. Um, have you ever explored that as a thought? Or experienced it yourself? Yeah, no, I think it's really interesting because it's almost like me, you know, I always used to say this with my dad that ethnic minorities are the most racist towards each other than white people. <laughs> and I don't know why that is. I, I, I find it really, really interesting as to why that happens. I mean, I see it quite a lot within the Asian community between Hindus and Muslims, for example, which is a phenomenal amount of racism. And I think that is quite a nuanced thing that we need to think about. Because as you say, when you've got that sort of BAME label, it didn't mean anything to anybody. No. Because there was, there was, I, want, I don't want to use the word divisions, but there was differences within that group. So they didn't connect with each other. Yeah. But actually to me, 
all people of color have a shared experience, mm. no matter what that is. There mm. is a shared experience, and even though there's nuances and things in, within those groups, I still think there's more that connects us, mm. particularly when it comes to family and family relationships, than makes us makes us different. Mm. Um, but yeah, no, I do, I, I do find that really, I do find it incredibly interesting. And I think when you got that sort of mixed together, it, I think it, it does feel unusual. So you do get sort of Asians who marry white people and you get black people who marry white people, have relationships with white people. You don't tend to get yeah. it a lot. Yeah. Um, and you, you don't, and I just find that really fascinating as, yeah. as to, as to why that is. I mean, this might not be something that you want to put in your article. No, no, I, I think it's an important thing. We actually discussed this, um, yeah. about a month ago. Yeah. And it came up in an episode and we were like, that's really true. Uh, we had a, a South Asian contributor and they were just like, our family should, we never talk about the fact our families don't actually value us. Each yeah. Other. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and, but yeah, we're so similar. In terms of like being family centric and like how we're raised so and our worldview in terms of like how we sit in the global conversation, there's a lot of similarities. But if you if you ever try to say I'm bringing home a black guy or a Jamaican guy, it's a, it's a thing, it's a family meeting, and um, we don't talk about it. And I was like, that's so interesting. <laughs> but that's it because my mum always used to say when we because like I married a white guy mm. and my mom, I always used to joke with my mum and said I should have just let you choose choose my husband because I swear you would have got me someone better. <laughs> so we always have this kind of like she would have got me a doctor or something. <laughs> miserable monkey who I ended up married to and all of that kind of stuff. But we're always laughing saying what you know, what's what's the order that you're allowed and all of that kind of stuff. But it's it's very, very interesting. What is the order? Well according, according to your mother. You're so according to my mother, it's 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 the religion thing is the most Ah, is the okay. more so than ethnicity mm-hmm. more so than than anything it's like Muslims and Hindus do not mix that's mm. like that's meant to be like completely that's separate that's wild okay cool do you know what I mean yeah. so it was like you know so I brought a black guy home will that be alright yeah yeah that'd be fine mm. and then it was like especially if they're Christian <laughs> do you know what I mean mm. and then it was like okay if they originate from Africa then that's better than if they originate from the West Indies yeah. because they're better people you know yeah, and all that yeah, and there's yeah. a whole kind of like I would love to get down to a final hierarchy because if it's uh, <laughs> if it's Hindu versus Muslim as, well, as the number one like do not do that yeah and then what comes next is it like Caribbeans next like specifically Jamaicans and then it's like Africans and then it's like you can bring home a white person but like as long as they're middle class middle class yeah, white so person it's the, if, it's a, if it's to do with yeah if it's to do with being white then that's to do with your level of education more than right. anything else then there's like that assumption that people make that people who have originated from Africa as opposed to the West Indies mm. I know originally blah 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 but if it is that then Africa is better because those people tend to be more educated and more into like um, achievements and mm. all of that so it that's brilliant. It's, it's amazing where all like the perceptions like come from. Yeah, yeah. Then it's like, okay, so what if people are Chinese? Then it's like, no, because even though they are educated, they're just very, very different people. Mm. And do, do you know what I mean? It, yeah. it, it's all just listening to and talking. It's just like, what the it's hell? just to get a science. And, and I appreciate like, you can always tell, you can almost tell the, where the input comes from, from those <laughs> views and like proximity to whiteness. And then yeah, it's like, yeah, yes, yeah. You can Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. 
BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Be asked, asked from the same religion. Yeah, and yeah, like, yeah. We really, you could never be like something else. And it's just like, it's really interesting, actually. It's fascinating. But I mean, if you think in terms of like geographical proximity, mm. India and China are touching each yeah. other. And yet, I mean, my, when I, I was actually um, saying to Vera, my friends at school, most of them were actually Chinese because where I went to school, it was uh, in Liverpool and it was close to Chinatown. So a lot of my friends mm. were Chinese. Um, and she used to tell me about how the language that's used by um, Chinese people was just extremely racist. Mm. So just to describe the race, instead of the word for Indian people was slow people or something wow. like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It was just like, what the hell? That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. But then, yeah, I kind of feel like we all kind of do that to each other in a way. And and I think the, the bigger problem is, is when you when you have like, economic power and you can stop someone from working or something but on a social level there's so much work to be done well that's the thing the thing is that then serves the ruling classes very well mm. for us to be like oh they're like this and, mm. and, and they're the other but it's what makes me sad actually is in primary school you see children mixing with each other mm. across ethnic groups and by the time they got to us in high school you already saw those divisions right. appearing yeah. And that's what used to make me upset because kids who are five and six don't actually no care. Yeah, they like, don't care. Yeah. And by the time they're 11, they've already started dividing up. And by the time they're in year 11, you walk into a classroom and they're all sitting in their Separate different level. ethnic groups. That's crazy. And it's like, wow, where did that come from? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's, that upsets me because mm. I think, you know, I, I, I kind of do get it to some extent because you maybe you want to be with people who are like you or, Whatever, but how they see each other as being so different mm. when actually I think the sort of values and cultural norms that non-white people share mm. are actually very, very similar, particularly when it comes to family mm. and attitude towards parents. Mm. I'm 53, I'm petrified of my mother still. Mm. I care about what she thinks. Mm. And when I say to my white friends, oh, no, no, don't tell my mum this. <laughs> They'd be like, what the hell? You've got a 26-year-old and yeah. yet you're still like, oh shit, my mum's going to know. Yeah, that's a real thing. So we, we did an episode once called How to Symbolically Kill Off Your Parents. And it was like, the, B, the BBC were like, could you could you change that title? I was like, no, that's exactly what we mean. It's symbolically, which is very clear. You're not actually going to do it. Um, but it's like, if you return to a child state in front of your parents, you can't parent because like you're still, you become 10 years old again. And then your child is yeah. looking at you like, no, I'm pretty sure yeah, like yeah, I had a grown yeah, up person. Yeah. And it creates this real like legacy. But then at the same time, 
parental respect is really important to us. Like, I, I could never disrespect my mother. Yeah. Like, you have no, never no, talked no, to her no, sadly. No, no, so no, no. It, it's, it's like, I don't, I don't really know what the, the answer is, but I think only the parents can free us. So I have to free my children of that whole thing of like, if you don't listen to me, then, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I know. I mean, I, I've always tried to give my kids as much freedom as possible mm. because I've almost gone the opposite way because I think, no, I don't want you to have that level of responsibility that I had towards mm. my parents because it's, it's excruciating. Mm. So every not. single decision that you ever make or even things like, I can't go out, I've got to do this for my mum. Mm. I said I'd go shopping for it or... Mm. And like when when you've got white friends, they don't get that. No. They don't get that. Like, just tell them. They told their mom to f off. Yes. Fifteen years, fifteen years in. <laughs> so could you the imagine? Sort of that. Oh. But that's the thing that that connects us. That connects non-white people together. Mm. Attitude towards parents. Attitude towards you know um, siblings and mm. all of that kind of stuff. That has to come first. Yeah. Above everything else. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I didn't. I went to university, but I went to university in my hometown, mm. so I could still connect or be with my family family, and that wasn't my parents going you have to go to university I just knew I had to go Mm. to my home university so that they could still you know use me yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) (laughs) have me doing stuff around the house and all that driving places go collect this from someone's house yeah 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 yeah. because none of them they didn't drive I was the driver and I'd be like yeah okay I'll take you here and I'll take you there (laughs) I still to this day have to prioritise taking my mum shopping that's such a character but it builds such a character in a relationship that you just don't get other places and I think people are so quick to, to abandon their parents and be like I'm a grown up now but there's something like you shouldn't be in fear of them but you should definitely have this a great relationship we're going to visit them on a regular basis I love her my mama it's great brilliant thank you so much I really appreciate it see so I I love that I love that honesty and I think sometimes the truth isn't really kind and it's not really warm and I'm not saying she said anything bad I think what she said was just how I understood it to be if you're South Asian there is a class structure um about who you can date and first and foremost it's like date within our religion date within our culture within the religion and then you know after that we might accept a white male we might accept um uh, an african over a caribbean and you know they have a hierarchy and they're like well chinese and that means this and these are all these tropes and stereotypes that get perpetuated from um uh, uh from from older generations but there is something about how black and brown culturally are connected. And I'd love to see that in, a, in TV. I'd love to see that on Hollyoaks, like actually talking about the nuances between black and brown because uh, I was in a meeting the other day and they just said the word BAME and I was just like, we don't do BAME. <laughs> I had to reestablish, we don't, we don't do BAME. I'm so sorry, I, I'm not sure if you understood. And, and there is this like desire to kind of clump others together. And it's so disrespectful. And I was just like, you, I don't want to be referenced in that way. I don't want to be, I find it dishonoring to sit there and clump me together with South Asian communities when we have very little in common. The core values we do have in common is being family centric um, and actually being colonized at different points. But after all, the, the global oppression that happens to blackness doesn't happen in the same way to brown people. Um, and it is a different experience. So it was super interesting to hear her thoughts. And I'd love to see more black and brown dynamics interactions what people think and what people say and how unworkable it is because combined we're about 15 16 million people in the country that's a lot it's a huge amount of people and i think we need to be represented much more aligned as to who we actually are 
And then afterwards, uh, speaking to Jay Sheree, I, I came up and I sat down with uh, Richard Blackwood um, and Tommy Ade. Super, like Tommy Ade is a, he's, he's a brilliant actor. Like I watched him, um, and every time there's a scene, he's very pensive. His reaction is very, like you can tell something's happening on the other side. He plays. Uh, so when the camera basically means when the camera like, like me right now, when the camera is facing me. Um, you don't know what's going on behind the camera, but his face can tell you what's going on. And I was like, that's incredible the way you do that. Um, and he's a very, very nice young man and he's been <clears throat> under the two tradition wing, wing of Richard Blackwood um, for the last couple of years. And Richard Blackwood is like a legend. And when I say a legend, I'm not even going to let that go as just like a passing statement. He is a legend. And it's brilliant, like spending time with him on an ongoing basis because the thing about being around someone that's been around for 30 years, so when I was going up there, I was with my mom and I said, hey, mom, I'm going to go see Richard at, um, at Hollyoaks. And she was like, oh, Richard, I love Richard. He's brilliant. And like, you know, he's been around. Like, I remember him being the young upstart when it was like Robbie G and Eddie Nesta and Felix Dexter. And he was like the young one. He was smooth and like funny and brilliant. And he took it to a whole nother level. The way that Mo Gilligan has taken it to another level now for us in this age, Richard Blackwood did that at an age where like there was no one, there was no reference point for what he became in this country. He was one of the most famous people in this country at a point um, and did incredibly well. And, and I think he also talks about the, his relationship and when he was called bankrupt and what that was like um, <clears throat> and how his own community was booing him at a Hackney Apollo show when they found out he was bankrupt. And I think it was really sad because it's like once people really want to be a part of your ascension, but once your ascension is um, leveling out, immediately it's about who can tear you down. And, in the, and this isn't just blackness, this is people. Everyone, like on the way up, everyone's your best friend. And it, it just depends on how big your way up is. But once you get all your support, you have to be very careful about how you manage yourself. And he was talking to some of those things and it really was like quite sad to hear someone so amazing have to question his presence and he knows he knows he's amazing but you just think he doesn't really get loved in the way that he should when we talk about amazing black people doing amazing things in the uk he doesn't get spoken about it'll be like marcus rashford stormzy idris elba and then people act like that's it and like before any of those people he needed to come and do something super dope and be on our screens on a regular basis and take it to a whole nother level and he's never really left us he didn't he didn't go mad and like think he was too good um, for everybody. Like he didn't. He I, I've I've known him for almost fifteen years. Never has he started on me ever. Like he's never been like, oh no, I'm talking to you. He's around. He's accessible. Um, and if you need him, he'll he'll try and be there. He used to do Sunday shows so often, and he really didn't need to. And he would come through and and do it every time we needed him. Um, he's also done some filming stuff. He's done some stuff for Dope Black Dads before. He's just always been around and been a really good figure. So I want him to get his flowers as well as an incredible person but I spoke to him uh, and and uh, Tommy Adia about um, the scenes that he's doing and why the storyline is so important but not just the knife crime part but also the dynamic between father and son like watching a black father and son who has an adult child um, on screen like what is that like and why is it so important because Tommy's 20 and he's come from London so he's seen some things but he's also now an actor in you know one of the top soaps in the in the country and like what does that do for his understanding of and his own lived experience so I spoke to them both um, also here my name is Richard Blackwood and I play Felix on Williams 
My name is Tommy Ade, and I play Demarcus. Uh, can you tell me a little bit more about the storyline uh, between you um, and why and why it's so important? Um, well, the storyline at the moment is like um, basically the, the knife crime incident. Um, potentially, well, not potentially, it's the wrong word, but they don't know basically who has committed the crime. You know, um, Demarcus could be could be the culprit. Um, but what it really investigates is the father and son relationship in this moment. You know, um, me trying to help my son through this time, whichever way it goes. Mm. Um, and also, you know, they say the sins of the fathers bestow the kids. It kind of invest, invest, kind of touches on that in terms of maybe my shortcomings is the reason why Demarcus's character is where he is at this point. And sort of like having to go back over my old steps through Demarcus's help, you know, to kind of put things right or at least put the patches on the open wounds that were that are still there. Mm. There's, some, there's some scary moments there. in there where it's like people are really like hunting you down to yeah, get answers. Like, what, what was that like to play? Have you ever had that kind of play out in your on your own life? Not definitely not to that extent. Mm. Not to that extent. But of course, where I grew up and sort of my age, I've seen it a lot. Um, around me, especially sort of very recently. And again, that's why I feel like this storyline is so important because mm. it's like, it gives our audience an, an idea and sort of a lens of a certain lifestyle that they probably have never seen before. You know, they hear a young black boy with a knife and think criminal, they think monster, you know, but actually being able to get to the crux of why a young black man carry a knife today is one of the things that I like about how you play it is that you, you always look very pensive in terms of like, pro, like like I see the mental processing of the information around like do, are, you, are you pulling from a real experience or is this is this you just using your amazing acting craft <laughs> <laughs> I, I definitely think, think think there's a bit of both um, there is definitely pulling from personal experiences where I feel backed into a corner where I feel it's sort of me against the world you know, I, I feel like we all sort of go through those those experiences and those moments, depending on what it is. And so, yeah, definitely pulling from there as well. And then for you, Richard, like, this is like partially like a biopic story in some ways. Yeah. Like, did, did you actually inspire the story or or was it just happened to be a consequence of it? No, I, no, I definitely inspired it, but not with necessary. I always say, I, I didn't go through knife crime. I was stuck up at knife point mm. uh, when I was 17. It's basically the age of your character. Mm. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the fear took over me. I initially, I thought I was going to fight the guy and then I saw the size of the knife and I realised it wasn't going to be a fair fight. No. Right? So, um, you know, I kind of took the second option. Mm. Right? But uh, luckily for me, I survived it because he was saying, come around this corner. And I went around the corner because that's where my uncle lives. So I was trying to get to his house. But I mean, he could have easily done a crazy, a madness to me at that point. He chose not to. Um... Sometimes later we got him back, me and my older brother. We got my stuff back. So that story ended up being a good story. However, right, um, right, however, it was a thing where when I told my dad, I was scared to tell him and a little bit ashamed because I knew that my dad would look at me and think, why didn't you fight the guy? But that's not, I don't want people to look at my dad and think he's some kind of monster. He is also a victim of how he grew up. My dad was that kind of person that, you know, if you pull a knife on him, you, be, you better want to use it because he's going to still come at you because that's how he was raised. 
you know, or should I say the environment he was raised in. So um, when I told that story to Lucy, she she was saying, Do you know what, we can investigate that and put that into a nice storyline of father and son dynamic. And sometimes the parent teaching the son to be like them when really the time isn't cool for it. Maybe it's to go the opposite way, you know what I mean? And try not to be that way anymore. Like you don't, those are things that you, you're not proud of. So you shouldn't install them into your kids. Um, so that's what they tried to do with the storyline. So to then do the whole knife crime thing. And then, as I say, we'll keep the viewers will see the dynamics that Felix and DeMarcus go through. It's very close to home. And, and that's where a lot of the truth comes from, which is great. Like people will be able to resonate or should I say that things will resonate with them when they watch it? And there is like a pride in our community. Like there's, that's, a, that's a commodity in a weird way of just like how we, I don't know, I think even in your character, there's a lot of pride, which is what is pushing him to change his behavior. Like, can you speak to a bit more just like the pride in our community and what that does? Because I think sometimes not having maybe material things or, or standing, that is the, like, the last thing that you can protect yourself mm. from and how that plays a role in your decision making. Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, Look, again, being a young 20-year-old black boy, I definitely know about that pride that is sort of inbuilt in us. Um, I sort of feel like that's why, that is why, you know, DeMarcus sort of got the knife. It was a sense of, I can't let this person push me around because of who I am. I mean, who is he? But he feels like there is some sort of inbuilt level of, no, this person can't push me around. Like, I was reading a comment the other day on one of the clips in the storyline this week and <laughs> a liked comment was imagine getting bullied by a white guy and I saw the profile picture and of course it was it was a young black dude and I think that is just again that pride of imagine getting bullied by a white guy you know what I mean there's this sense of that's so prevalent you know that's so you know it's really weird because people people will hear Tommy say that and white people could easily get offended and go what do you mean but this is part of the things that maybe certain white people don't understand. We were raised that white people weren't supposed to be able to bully us, mm. right? <laughs> but that was only because of the racism that our parents had to go through, mm. right? And nine times out of ten, where it inherently came from was that if white people bullied us, it's because we were chased by a group of them, mm. right? So we always looked at it like, on your ones, singular, yeah, mm. singular, you could, you could. <laughs> just pressing the line right yeah it'd be like singular you couldn't move to us like that yeah so that's where it came from and then also where it came from believe it or not is when you saw boxing and you know there was that thing of you know you didn't really have uh, white heavyweight champions mm. do you know what I mean it was Mike Tyson it was Frank Bruno it was uh, Lennox Lewis it was, do you know what I mean and that really it's changed now because now you have Tyson Fury but if you think about it it was a predominantly black dominated sport in terms of like the, the, the heavyweight champions of the world mm. from Muhammad Ali all the way up right before that was Rocky Marciano which was back in you know what I mean mm. so black people had that ideology of we're tougher than you mm. it was just but we had to adhere to that because we were bullied by you mm. so we had to be tougher than the oppressor if that made sense mm. so that's so just so people understand it's not a thing that you should take offence by you have to understand where it came from so even now somebody of Tommy's age group can make that comment he or she is because they were raised with that ideology that a white person can't just bully me by himself mm. do you know what I mean it's, it, and you don't really hear of it you don't really hear if somebody got robbed if a black man got robbed 
you don't really hear there was a white boy that robbed him. Mm. See, it makes sense. No, 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 like, it's just, it's just sure. not really a thing, mm. right? Do you know what I mean? And if it was, believe you me, the black person straight away can't can't even tell his friends that oh, in no. a weird sort of way. Uh-uh. It's the pride. It's the pride. It's like what a white boy. Do you know what I mean? But that's where, just so that people don't take offense, that's where it comes from, mm. if that makes sense. Richard, I'm going to say this now, okay? You're not allowed to get mad at me, too. No, but no, go ahead. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> so I was talking to my mum and saying I was coming here, yeah? And my mum remembers you from, like, being the young comedian in the Robbie G. Eddie Nesto era. Yes. Where it was like, you were the, like, the, the hot, amazing person coming through. Mm-hmm. And then I've grown up with you, knowing, like, oh, like, someone's showing us how it can be done mm-hmm. on TV and film. You're now inspiring another generation because he's sure. younger than I am. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. what, what is it like in terms of, like, how, how it was in them days to, like, now and the impact that you can actually have as a black person on TV, in media? Do you know what? First of all, there's no way I can get offended by that question. Mm. Right. I just want to say because that's, that's three that's three generations technically, but it's cool. Right? Yeah. No, no, I'm alright with it. I'm, <laughs> I'm alright right with it. It's how you look. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> just put that out Come there. On now. Come on, I let you tell it. Yeah. <laughs> but you know what it is. The truth of the matter is, is that I have a tattoo on my arm, right? That says "Aspire to Inspire Before You Expire," a, 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 a term that I came up with. I'm very proud to say I came up with. Um, it's right here, right? And um, you can't really see it amongst the bits. Aspire to inspire before you expire. And it's so weird because I came up with it when I was probably probably just under 20 years ago now. And it's so weird because I've kind of lived by it without even realising it. It's like I've tattooed it on my skin and it's become what I ultimately stand for. When I first came into the industry, you know, Robbie G and Eddie Nesta, Real McCoy days, blouse and skirt, but early 90s because I got real McCoy when I was in 1995 I'd already done two years of stand-up by that time so I was seasoned enough to do TV if mm. that makes sense um, I just wanted to be a star if that makes sense mm. selfishly I just wanted to be a star make money and and, and stand for something mm. but I didn't yes I always wanted to inspire but when you're 20 years old 21 you're not thinking about that you're thinking about all the money you're going to make and you know, the women that are going to fancy you. And all that, that's, you're thinking about all the, the, the shallow things. And then as time passes and, you know, you realise you, you're lucky enough to still be in the industry, because that's the first thing, you know, then it's fear of not wanting to fall off. So that kind of propels you to kind of reinvent yourself. Mm. You're still not really thinking about who you're inspiring, you know. Mm. It's just more, I don't want to be a yesterday. I don't want to be referred to as a has-been, because mm. that's the fear. A lot of these rappers, a lot of these artists that are out there now are probably now at the stage where they're really successful and now the onus is on them to maintain. Now, they might not admit this, but they might see this interview and say to themselves, it's a true thing. Mm. Because now, when everybody's going, yo, you see you? you what? Mm-hmm. Right? They, you, you, to then have them go... What happened, man? Mm. You don't want to hear that. Mm. <laughs> you want them to say, them men they still can't talk to you. Mm. That's what you want to hear. So you start doing the things, thinking outside the box to make sure that that accolade, and it's not about the money, mm. it's the accolade. You don't want to be going to a club and the club that they let you in for free, they're not going, could you, could you? Mm. You don't want that, mm. right? I mean, even though that's how you started off, but you've gotten used to the perks. Mm. So, What's happened with me is over the, the, I guess, the three generations, I was reinventing myself. I was finding new ways to fit in and also to to do what I do now at that stage and at this stage now. 
And I think I realised as I was going along, when people go, you know what, you're a legend. And you kind of go, because you stop to realise in you trying to stay on and luckily being able to do so, there are so many people that haven't. Mm. There are so many people that have fallen off and not because of they're not good enough. It's just that sometimes time, their time's up. Mm. So they're now falling off and it's now time for the next generation. And they've not been able to latch on and become the newer version of themselves for the new generation. Mm. They've been stuck in what they are. Do you think people just don't understand what it's like to be like, you've been in the light now for like 30 just years. Just under 30 years now. Yeah. yeah. Even people just don't understand what it takes to get there, to stay there. They just don't, it doesn't land with them. Like I, For me, I would just assume you, you would intuitively know because like you literally... Um, like when you did our show Sunday show yeah people would line up around the block to come and to come and see you and hear what you think about different topics you've just been that guy so long it's almost like they just forget that it, it still requires people to like honour you in some way um, you think we just don't know and just don't understand like how important it is to still say those things I think some people don't really care and and, and, and but here's the thing you know people people don't understand with me I'm not a sensitive guy. I used to be. Torians are very, we're both Torians. We're very sensitive people inherently, innately. We can't help that. But you be in a business like the one we're in for as long as I have. Oh no, that, that gets rubbed away quickly. Sorry. <laughs> because you, 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 it's a cold world that this entertainment industry that I've chosen, mm. the, the dark side of it is extremely dark mm. because you've got to remember, I went bankrupt publicly mm. at 31 years old, which is now 19 years ago, mm. right? I went bankrupt. The whole world turned against me. Mm. I was lucky there was no social media, mm. but it, but people were so in your face. Man would walk up and say, oh, you're broken it. Like they, people did not care, right? Mm. I mean, do you know how thick skinned you had to be mm. where you're being introduced on stage? I was introduced on stage at Hackney Empire mm. and the crowd booed. Like I'd lost their money. I actually said it wrong. Was it? Did I say it wrong? Boo. And they heard Richard Black. They didn't even say the word. Boo. That's wrong. In unison. It was like a choir. I said, yo, these guys, the pitch is perfect. Right? But as I say, I went through that 19 years ago. Mm. You think that I'm not going to be, I'm going to be soft now? Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean, you, unfortunately, you people knocked that out of me. Mm. So I'm not sensitive about things. When people put comments up and they're hoping it will get to me, I'm like, bro, I've had a whole world boo me mm. for losing something that was mine. Mm. So your comment cannot, just, just logically, if you, you think about it, how can your little two line comment have an effect on me? Somebody wrote, Today, mm. they brought a comment going, oh, you remember when you thought you was a British Will Smith and I hoped you was dead, right? And I just looked at their picture and I know he was hoping it would go, mm. all I was thinking, you got a child in your picture. Mm. Do you realise the karma you bring back on yourself mm. by even saying that to me? I won't feel sorry for you. Mm. But he doesn't even know that I'm actually going, hey, yo, if I was you, I'd take that back. Mm. You're holding a child. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And you're wishing somebody dead. Mm. Don't you know how karma works? Yeah. Right, do you know what I mean? So that's what I'm trying to say. In his mind, he doesn't even realise I'm praying for him, mm. right? Because I've been... But if that was 19 years ago, I would have taken offence. Mm. You wish me dead. Mm. Different person now. So as I say, I think the generation now, or the, they just don't want to give it up. But I'm okay with that because one day they will have to, mm. right? Do you know what I mean? And, and they will give it up like they always 
feel that they have like yeah well, mm. it's like no you weren't because mm. I, I see everybody mm. I see everything I don't miss nothing mm. right do you know what I mean and I don't but I just don't take offence because like, I know that God's got something big planned for me mm. just like I've been around this long and, and if anything all I would say to them is don't worry about so much about me just remember that one day you mm. are going to be in that place where you're, you're hoping your work will speak to something yeah and no one's bigging you up for it. And trust me, it will it'll make you feel this big because mm. you know there was a time when I was bam, 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 bam. Mm. And everybody was talking about me, blah, blah. And then the new person comes through. Mm. And guess what? That new person's referring to you as an old timer. Yeah, yeah. And then Mandy's old and you yeah. go, oh. Right? So you you're gonna go for it yourself. Mm. Then you will, I think then they will respect the fact that wow. Richard was was able to do that three times. Mm. Every generation that came through, Richard was still relevant. Mm. Richard's still relevant to somebody, somebody's kids now Mm. at 50, Mm. like he was at 21 when he started. Mm. And I say to people out there, the challenge is, are you going to be relevant in 29 years? Mm. And not relevant where people go, I remember. Mm. No, your name is still ringing. It matters. Don't worry about me. Yeah. That's the challenge I offer to you. Do that. Yeah. Right. And I've finished on this. Will Smith said to Eminem, Eminem did, uh, Will Smith has to, does, doesn't want to cuss these records, but I do F you in mm, blah, blah, blah. Will Smith's rebuttal was, be here in 20 years time. Mm. Then we can talk. Mm. And the truth is, Will Smith now, even though Will Smith, I mean, uh, um, Eminem's Eminem. still here, but he's not as big as he he's was. Trust me, Eminem is like, I respect what he's saying, because guess what? Will Smith, if bar the slap, mm. he's still Will Smith. Still so he's still bigger than Eminem. Yeah. 20 years later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Will Smith goes, you don't get it. Yeah. Be here in 20 years' time and then yeah. say that to me. I actually watched that today on the train, which is really hilarious. Yeah. I watched him, Eminem, talk about it. He was doing an interview at the time, being like, well, I feel like he was attacking us. Yeah, yeah. And, da, da, da. and I was just like, that's so interesting. But this is where, like, they say youth is wasted on the young. And it's like, you don't get, like, I mean, I think Jay-Z also made the point um, in his New York Times interview about our, the white hot space is a very short period of time. Oh my gosh. And it's my like, new... I want to be here forever. Ever. Yeah. See, I'm going to be here forever. That's mm. already cemented now. I don't even need to do anything more. Mm. I'm already here forever with the 30 years I've done. Mm. You guys need to be here forever. Mm. Don't worry about me. Yeah. <laughs> right, you know I, mean? I, I have one last quick question. So your your character um, in EastEnders is very different to the character you have now. And I mentioned this when I saw you. I love the fact that you feel way more regular. You're like a, just a black man who who is a father rather than a performatively black man. Yes. In, in extremities. How important is that versus like the previous characters that you've essentially played? I, but I've got, I, I do. I, I openly as well give love to Hollyoaks for that. Hollyoaks have allowed my character because he came in as a bit of a criminal, mm. but he came in on the premise that him and Kelly's relationship was Kelly is going to smooth him out. To be around me, you're gonna to have to get rid of that. Mm. So he goes through the elements of still kind of going back in. And she there's one scene where she goes, You need to grow up. You're trying to act like a kid, right? You're trying to do the things you was doing when you were younger. Grow up. You got kids to, to do you know what I mean? And then even um Bobby's character, like my son, his character was like, Well, you do if you're gonna do that, then I'm gonna do it. Mm. And he was like, No, no, he goes, Well, then you need to grow up then. So these are the things that were tackled. So then by the time we get to Tommy's role now, Tommy's like because of the nonsense you did is the reason why I'm here. Mm. And now you want to talk to me? Mm. So, you know, these are, as I say, the sins of the fathers bestow the kids. 
This is the great thing that they've allowed my character as a black man to do, which is that we tackle the issues, but take the colour out just as a father. If you're not instrumental in your child's life, Demarcus's situation could be that. Then Demarcus and the son, Demarcus and Felix now have to go through trying to patch up where the water's coming through, the leaks. Do you know what I mean? I, I, I put that to any father that they, you have to go through that. Do you know what I mean? Whether he was there with your children or not. Do you know what I mean? So I think Hollyoaks have allowed me to come away from you got to play this, this, this and this because this is what the audience wants as opposed to just play a normal person. The fact that you're black is just... Is enough. Is enough. You don't need to play I'm black and this. It's the character. They need to forget that they're looking at a black man. You're playing... You can act... We're actors. It just so happens we're black actors, but we're great actors. So we can deliver scenes that... And you know what? I think we're winning when you can do scenes where you can go, a white person could have played that, an Indian person. doesn't matter. just so happens that we played it. Mm. It's not stereotypical to us. Mm. And just final words from you, in terms of like being 20, like speaking to 20-year-olds, mm. what, what is something valuable? Because I don't want to give them a like, you know, don't do, don't do bad things type of speech, but just like authentically the value of, like you've actually done it. You've come from... You're 20, you come from London, you're here, you're an actor. Like, what is actually possible for, for young black men and what advice would you give to any young people? I feel like just pushing. Mm. That's what it is for me, sort of finding this thing that you resonate with. It doesn't matter what it is, okay. do you know what I mean? Mine just happened to be acting, but anything that you just resonate with, just trying to push it. I feel like, again, Richard is a great example of that, but people my age, we've had such great black role models to follow. Do you know what I mean? And they're pushing it, pushing it to the sky. And so, I don't know, I've always, I've had this thought for a long time that let's just see how far we can push it. Yeah. You know? And and that's it. That's it for me. Like, I'm really honoured. I had a great day. I spent time with some amazing people. We had some great conversations. I learned a lot, actually. They got me really thinking about representation in media. And us as a viewer, like, we, you can't say to viewers that you must get smarter about how the shows are going to be done. It's, it's their job to, to come and communicate to us in a very clever way and win us over. We're too busy living to be worried about the nuances of a show. So the, the burden is on them to continue doing this great work and honouring these amazing storylines, for sure. But it does make you realise that how much effort goes into it, how much manpower, how many people. So I want to thank everyone that looked after me um, in that 24-hour period because after that, they took us out for dinner and drinks, put me in a really nice hotel um, and were really, really nice and looked after me until I, I got back on the train again. So um, some of the cast, you know, we've, we've been speaking since and it's just been really, really nice uh, experience. But I, I really do think about representation. I mean, I do think the importance of that storyline. So make sure you tune in to Hollyoaks. Some of it is also available on YouTube, so you haven't even got to try and find it on a platform. Go to YouTube and you can see most of the episodes and clips available um, online for you and just catch up on what's been going on because it's a really, really brilliant storyline. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. Uh, I've been Marvin Harrison. This has been the Dot Black Dad podcast. Thank you so much, Hollyoaks. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.